0: Well, we are in session 7 of our study of the book of Revelation, and the first 6 verses of chapter 3 involve the letter to the church at Sardis. And let me mention this right now, that of the book of Revelation, as you will quickly uh, understand, I regard chapters 2 and 3 as the most essential part for you and me as professing Christians. Jesus Christ wrote seven epistles, and they are in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. But strangely enough, as we study those seven letters, it's going to emerge, I think, that the most provocative, the most impacting of these seven letters, at least in one way of reckoning them, is the letter to Sardis, the most impacting one to you and me. So let's take a look at this. Just by way of warm-up and review and for visitors, We're in the book of the Revelation. Notice that singular. The word means the unveiling. The apocalypsis is the unveiling. It's the consummation of all things. It's the only book of the Bible that has the audacity to promise a special blessing to the reader. Other books say, read the Word of God in a collective sense, but only one book emerges to say, read me, I'm special. There are 404 verses of the book which conclude over 800 allusions from the Old Testament. And they'll actually be uh, listed in the notes that will accompany the study. And, of course, it presents the climax of God's plan for man. When I say it that way, it sounds a little academic, so let me say that God's plan for you and me is climaxed in this book. And that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, it's such a special blessing. And let's keep in mind to whom the book was given. This comes as a surprise to many who haven't paid attention to the first sentence. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him. Unto whom? Jesus Christ. Right on. Why? To show unto His servants things which must suddenly come to pass. Shortly or suddenly come to pass. And He sent and signified it, rendered it into signs. In other words, it's to Jesus Christ. And He written and signified it by His angel unto His servant John, who bare record of the word of God, for the test- of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all the things that He saw. So John's a penman recording this special message that was given to Jesus Christ. Then verse 3 announces this blessing that's echoed all through the book. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the times at hand. Did you notice the catch? And keep those things. All of you are eligible for this blessing, but you have, you've got to keep these things. You've got to hold them. You've got to hold fast to them. And we'll talk more about that as we go. This book has its own outline. The first thing you do when you study a book of the Bible, for most people, is you try to outline at least in broad terms. Revelation gives you that in verse 19, near the end of the first chapter. John has said, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. You don't catch it at first until you study it carefully, but that actually partitions the book into three sections. Write the things which thou hast seen, John, and what that was when you get to verse 19. From verse 12 to 18 is a vision of Jesus Christ that he saw in heaven. That's the vision of Christ. It occupies the bulk of chapter 1. Then he says, write the things which are, and we'll discover chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to churches in existence at that time. And the things which shall be metatauta, the Greek term meaning after these things or hereafter. What follows after the churches starting from chapter four, verse one on, is subsequent to the church. Chapter four verse one opens up with the Greek word metatouta, the same key word that's in verse nineteen of chapter one here. So that's the those are three partitions, and obviously we are plunging into what we regard as the most practical, most impacting section of the entire book. Yes, we'll get into the seals and trumpets and bowls, but that's later. The last verse, of course, is an example of how Jesus explains what the signs mean. All these things are rendered into signs. He says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest, my right hand. That's an allusion earlier in the chapter. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which thou sawest are the seven churches. This is very typical of the whole book. The book is rendered into signs. And I still remember, as a young teenager, attending a lecture one Sunday evening, of a a teacher that pointed out that the entire book of Revelation is in code, but every code is explained somewhere else in the Bible. And that just fascinated me. And that caused me, that started a treasure hunt that's lasted me for over 50 years. You can't exhaust this book. And the more you study the book and track down these things, it'll take you virtually into every other book in the Bible. People challenge me, what about Esther? Well, I haven't linked it to Esther particularly, but I'm sure it's there, but that's the only one I haven't linked it to, if you will. Anyway. The seven churches, the things that you are. Why these seven? This, this question will haunt us as we go, because there are over a hundred churches in the New Testament period, but Jesus chose seven in the proconsular province of Asia. Each one of these uh, letters has a strange closing phrase: "He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And this we discover by examination and application, there are s- uh, four levels of applications. The first level is local. So William Ramsey searched, researched, visited uh, archeologically each of these places and was shocked to discover that they were real churches in those days and he also uncovered evidence that the problems they deal with had a local application. So he's he's written a, a substantial volume on this. I happen to have his volume published back in, I think, turn of the century, 1904 I think there's a second level, He that hath, hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And that's a reminder to each of us that each of these letters applies to all churches. As we go through, we'll recognize certain central tendencies, certain thematic emphases for certain churches. It's easy to forget that all churches are impacted by all seven letters. In fact, when once you understand all seven letters, you'll be able to map spiritually any church you run into. Every church has elements of all seven to varying degrees. So let's not forget that, because it's going to be so easy to deal in stereotypes as we go. Be careful of that. And of course, if that's true, we also notice it says, He that hath an ear. And i love to ask you, how many of you have earlobes this evening? Okay. So this is written to you, and there's a personal application. Each one of the seven applies to each one of us. And that's probably, in many respects, the most valuable thing you'll take from these seven letters. But there is a fourth level that sounds pretty fringy. Something on the lunatic fringe. These prophecy enthusiasts can read prophecy into anything. You can almost hear people say that. I'm going to suggest to you that these seven letters, among other things, lay out the history of the church from Pentecost to the rapture. The book of Acts covers 30 years, give or take. The book of Revelation covers 2,000. And we'll, we'll watch that. And you say, Cheek, that, that's kind of speculative. That's a conjecture Chuck." Yes, it is. It's just a conjecture. And I'm just going to lay it out for you and you come to your own conclusions. But I'll point out something right up front. If you put these letters in any other order, it wouldn't be true. But in the order they're in, strangely enough, it seems to profile the history of the church. We'll discover as we you'll see why tonight, too, why I emphasize this. It's important to understand the design as we study mankind, the software architecture of ourselves as the Bible reveals it, or as we talk about the Bible itself, how it's structured. In our product, Learn the Bible in 24 hours, it leans heavily on the design profile that we discover of the whole. It's also useful for these seven letters to realize that each of the seven letters has seven elements. There is the name of the church which turns out to be significant to the main theme of the letter. In each of the letters Jesus selects a title of himself, a different one for each letter, from the seven titles that are introduced in chapter 1. And as we in fact you can t- you can begin to infer the central thrust of the letter by noticing what attribute Christ emphasizes of Himself in the letter. Then he has a commendation. It's a report card. There's good news and bad news. He opens up, I know your works, and he he tells them what they're doing right. It's amazing to discover that most of them are surprised about that report card because he has a commendation and then he also expresses a concern. The people who thought they were doing well were not. The people who thought they weren't doing well were doing better than they thought every church is surprised, it would seem. And that should humble us, because whatever opinion we might have of whatever church, it's not necessarily true that that's the opinion Christ would have. And we want to be sensitive to His concerns. Well then, of course, on the basis of that he has an exhortation in each letter, and then he has this promise to the overcomer, a special promise to the individual in each of those churches, and then he has this closing phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those seven elements. Four of the churches of the seven have something missing. And that's going to be very provocative. Two of the churches have nothing good said about them. Two of the churches have nothing bad said about them. We want to be, be, pay attention to that. Well, we've been through Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and Thyatira. When we studied Smyrna, we noticed they were distinctive in that there was no concerns. Jesus commended them because they were enduring a lot of suffering. He just, in effect, said, hang in there, guys. There was no concern. There wasn't something you need to work on other than just to do what they're doing. We also noticed something else in the first three letters, that the promise to the overcomer seemed to be appended to the letter after this closing phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we got to Thyatira, we noticed, strangely, that that promise to the overcomer was in the body of the letter. And we'll discover that's going to be true of the last four letters. So there's something architecturally distinct between the first three and the last four. And we'll be able to infer that a little better when we've looked at all seven. But I'll call it to your attention as we go. Now, indicated there's a prophetic profile. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, in some sense, seem to be prophetically relevant. We discovered Ephesus was the apostolic church. We determined that Smyrna was the the suffering church. Smyrna being a synonym for myrrh and so on. Pergamus was the perverted marriage, the married church. And then last time we had the medieval church. I could call it by other names, but that's good enough. But we noticed that the first three had the... Promises, you know, postscripted, if you will. And the last four, those promises are in the body of the letter. So we're beginning to wonder, at least, what what's behind all this. Thyatira also had a strange threat. I started to say a promise. Maybe threat's a better term. Uh, that it, if it doesn't straighten out, it will be cast into the Great Tribulation. So that was a little disturbing. So what about Sardis? I'm going to suggest to you, if you know, the, the, the Protestant commentators have had a field day. Libraries are full of books that tie Thyatira, previously called Semiramis, um, to the Vatican, the Papacy, the, the Roman Catholic Church. Well, let's just uh, grant that for the, uh, for the purpose of discussion here and say, if that's the case, where does Sardis fit? That makes Sardis a profile of the Reformation, it would seem. Well, there's something about Sardis that we will notice as we go that should really disturb us because Sardis, the letter to Sardis has nothing good said about it. It's one of the two letters that has no offsetting favorable comment. So we need to look at Sardis with great gravity, whatever Sardis really means. So let's take a look, we'll take a look at it. The letter to Sardis, under the angel of the church in Sardis, write. And as I indicated before, there's four levels. We're going to start this one taking a quick look at the local reality. What was the city of Sardis all about? What is its history? It is one of the oldest cities on the planet Earth, or at least was. It started probably well before 2000 BC. A number of the ancient Greek writers mention it as a city of renown. When you get to about the 9th and 8th centuries before Christ, the Phrygians were the dominant Anatolian power, the power of Anatolia being the, the region that we think of as Turkey, the, the, the eastern part of Turkey. They had a king by the name of Midas who was credited by the Greeks with the power to change anything he touched into gold. He's a king of legend, obviously, for some reasons I'll come to. Uh, and during the same period of time we're dealing here is a Miletus uh, Ephesus and a number of other cities of Ionia were established along the Aegean coast. About 700 BC, the Phrygian kingdom was overrun and destroyed by the Cimmerians. That's a nomadic people who settled along the northern shore of the Black Sea. They were driven from their homes a couple centuries earlier uh, by the Scythians. The Scythians being a nomadic tribe that dominated the southern steppes of Russia from the Ukraine all the way to China and uh, are known in the biblical terms as, the Mag- as Magog. But in any case, the Sumerians um, overran the Phrygians. About 7th century BC, the Lydians established an empire along the Aegean coast, and they founded a kingdom in which Sardis was its capital. So you'll, the Lydian Empire is uh, very prominent in ancient history. Sardis was their capital. Sardis is of special interest to anyone that's studied the ancient language. Herodotus, which is known as the father of all history. And uh, Xenophon uh, write about uh, uh, the brother of Darius who lived there. Xerxes invaded Greece from there. Cyrus marched against his brother Artaxerxes there. We're going to talk a little bit about Cyrus in a minute. But it's one of the Sardis thus was one of the oldest and most important cities of Asia Minor until about 549 B.C when it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. To give you a map uh, feeling here, I put Athens in the lower left and Istanbul in the upper right on this map to give you a frame of reference. The circled island there is Patmos down the middle of the, the bottom of the map. And I've dotted in the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in a, in a clockwise uh, swing from Ephesus on around. And obviously, we're dealing here with Sardis. Now, just looking at the map, you can tell that Sardis is likely to be very prominent because it's at the intersection of all the roads. It's at a hub. And that plus its topography is very, very significant. It was a very strategic location between Pergamus, Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, and also Phrygia, the, the empire. And therefore it had very favorable commerce, and therefore it became very wealthy for several reasons, that being one of them. There was gold found in the river uh, Pactolus, which it was bordered on and gold and silver Lydian staters are considered the first coins in the world. They had their origin there. At its zenith they had a very famous king, Croesus. He became very proverbial for riches. Both his name and also the river Pactolus becomes proverbially identified with great wealth. Their patron deity was uh, Cybele, which we mentioned before, who presumably had a son by the name of Midas, the wealthy king of Phrygia. So Midas is, of course, a highly fabled guy, whether he really existed or it's just a, a Greek fablization of Croesus is a question of debate. In Greek mythology, the king of Phrygia, of course, was Midas. Because he presumably had hospitality to the satyr of Silenus, Dionysus, the god of wine, offered to grant Midas anything he wished... And he requested that everything he touched be turned to gold. But that was pretty stupid because he couldn't eat anything. But again, this legend links itself to the history of of, uh, Sardis. And of course, to free himself from enchantment, Midas was instructed by Dionysus to bathe in the Pactolus River. And it said that afterward, the sands of the river contained gold. That's the way the Greeks tie their legends to the, 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 the discovery of gold in the river. But anyway, the key thing you want to understand about Sardis in terms of its history, is that it appeared to be impregnable. It was a thousand feet up on like a peninsula in the mountains. Only the, su- the southern connection needed to be defended because it was a thou- sheer cliffs uh, over a thousand feet, some say 1500 feet high, were on three sides. So it was regarded as impregnable. If you guard the one axi- uh, access to it, you were d- very strong. Croesus had a big battle against Cyrus the Persian uh, in which he came home utterly defeated. But he thought by being back to his capital he was safe because it was regarded as impregnable. But you'll notice I use the term ostensibly impregnable. Ostensibly is an almost synonym for apparently, but it's something that's apparent but not really so. This will establish the paradox that is suggested by the name Sardis in the beginning. So, it was situated on the northern slope of Mount Tumlos, which is uh, 950 feet above the broad valley. I've seen other references say it was 1500, but whatever the distance is. And uh, at the base is the River Pactolus, which served also as a moat, and uh, making the city practically impregnable, because you could defend that one access to it, and you've got it made. But see, there's a, there's a oversight here, because the, the cliff is of clay, so it suffers from continual erosion, and the untrustworthy mud often left cracks which could be exploited by their enemies. And that's exactly, let me give you the first example, 549 BC, Jesus thought, because he, this battle that he engaged Cyrus in, he, he got pretty badly beaten, he returns home humiliated, embarrassed, and what have you, but he thought he was safe. But he foolishly left the three sides unguarded assuming that the main side was, uh, was uh, protected. Cyrus launches a 14-day siege, and he offers a reward to any man who could find a way of scaling these impossible cliffs. One of his soldiers, Heriodes, I guess you pronounce it, uh, noticed that a Lydian soldier accidentally dropped his helmet over the battlements, and he noted he watched the path the guy took to go retrieve it. And that obviously revealed to him an unguarded oversight. And so they, at night, scale this thousand-foot cliff and take the city over. And the, so in the darkness, the following night, a whole party led by this guy climbed the cliff and clambered over the unguarded battlements and take the city. The city was taken, as the historians say, like a thief in the night. That becomes a proverb of Sardis because this is... Let uh, you another example. You know, Hegel is famous for his quote. He says, History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. (laughs) People don't read their history books. See, the Sardians Sardians didn't learn their lesson in 214 B.C., two and a half centuries later. Again, these cliffs proved susceptible to a hazardous climb when Lagorius repeated the exploit of Herodotus, and the city was similarly taken by Antiochus for the Seleucid Empire. There's another example of that Herodotus talked about the Scythians, how because they were an entire society on horseback, you couldn't ever attack them. they just retreat. And then as they retreated, you overextended, they'd nail you. And that was their strategy. And Herodotus wrote a lot about that because the Greeks were very interested in understanding the Scythians. If Napoleon had read uh, Herodotus, he would have been able to anticipate how the general in charge of Moscow defeated Napoleon's invincible army. Because he, he, he adopted the same strategy this, that his four ancestors adopted. The Scythians, the, the Scythian strategy. Even the extent of vacating Moscow and burning Moscow behind him. And when Napoleon and his aunt, enters the, the Russia with uh, three quarters of a million troops and discovers no one to surrender, Moscow's in flames. He, he, think, he doesn't understand it until the winter sets in. And he went in with three quarters of a million and left with 10,000 because the winter closed in, and they nipped him, and he was, he, he was lucky to leave with the skin. He said, gee, he should have read Herodotus. So should have Hitler, because he did the same mistake that Napoleon did. Again, it's fascinating to see these traditional strategies from the Scythians. The Napoleon thing, of course, is what led to the Boverture 1812, Tchaikovsky celebrations. Anyway, Sardis, the Sardis is a similar situation. They didn't learn their lesson. They become a proverb that's important for us to understand. They're ostensibly secure, but not really so. They get taken like a thief in the night, is the expression they use. So in 549, they fell to the Persians. In 501, they were burned by the Ionians. In 334, they surrendered to Alexander the Great. In 322, taken by Antigonus. In 214, they fell to the Seleucids, as I mentioned. It's a city of failure. The name Sardis becomes synonymous with pretensions unjustified, promise without performance appearance without reality, false confidence that heralded ruin. They betrayed themselves by a lack of what? Watchfulness and diligence. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to preach to them in his letter. By the New Testament time, just to complete the history here, most of Sardis' earlier dignity and splendor, of course, had disappeared. They even had an earthquake in 17 A.D. that practically destroyed the place. It never quite recovered. In 1402 A.D., the town was destroyed by uh, Tamerlan. Archaeological excavations were begun on 1910, but the city wasn't even uncovered until 1958. So there's not much left. And the little, the little town, Sart is only a few fragments. All you've got, there's a few Greek pillars of the past, of what once was one of the proudest cities uh, in the region. Letter to Sardis, under the angel of the church at Sardis Right, And by the way, <laughs> I have to mention one thing. I have worked hard to try to find the meaning of each of the seven letters. With Sardis, I saw all kinds of conjectures. Many of you pick up commentaries and say, well, it probably means remnant, something like that. It turns out the Sardis stone is a stone that used to be regarded as a precious stone. They believe it was red, they're not sure, but it became then common rather than precious and I think that's very fascinating. No one can be quite sure what the Sarda stone actually is. I have 30 pages of speculations about what it really is because it shows up in the breastplate of the high priest and it shows up in the New Jerusalem as an idiom. See, part of the problem in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New is the labels for semi-precious stones was not consistent. And so the experts wrangle on what is it, what was a jasper really, or what was a sardius stone. But the interesting thing, the sardius stone is originally probably meant something very precious, but then has become very, very common. The fact that it's not identifiable, it has a name and no significance, is exactly what the letter is all about. I worked and worked and trying to figure out what really is the name, and then I realized that's the point. Because you're going to see that's the main thrust of letters, that you have a name, but it's empty. But let's go on. So Jesus picks us his title here, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, that idiom is familiar to you from chapter 1. The seven spirits of God, uh, which I, I infer from Hebrews, uh, from uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, are, is a Old Testament idiom for the Holy Spirit. That's the remedy for what they've got going on in Sardis. Jesus opens up and says, I know thy works. That's the way he opens many of the letters, right? I know thy works. Jesus knows what's going on. He's paying attention. He loves his church and he's watching. He says, I know thy works. Here's the, here's the sum and substance of the report card. That thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Boy! You know, I've, I've waded through a lot of commentators, some contemporary ones, and it's amazing to me how many don't really understand that phrase. They build, from this letter, build a, you know, a, a message to be more diligent and get over your spiritual blahs by being more devotional. They have their appropriate suggestions, but they don't really, they don't really hit the nail on the head. Jesus doesn't say they're ill. They're not in need of a remedy. No. They are dead. Let that sink in. This is a serious letter. It's among the most serious. I know that works. That thou hast a name, but art dead. Now, the word name in the Greek is onoma. It refers to a label. It means being covered by a name. You have a label, but you are dead. That's a heavy, heavy indictment coming from the king are dead. So let's, I'm in this case, what I'm going to do, take us out of the usual order. I'm going to skip ahead and let's stand back and understand where this fits prophetically to see, to get the full impact of the letter. So let me pause here. If if Thyatira was the papacy or the medieval church or the dominant church in the medieval period, then this would assume, uh, presumably be the Reformation. And I think many of us identify with some of the vestiges of that Reformation. Let's try to understand it. You have to understand that long before Luther, by the way, the winds of Reformation were starting to blow. Because the papacy had become vulnerable to attack because of greed. they were well known for their wanton lifestyles. Immorality. We went through that last time. And uh, the uh, ignorance, the untrained nature of, of the, of its officials in all ranks, not just at the top, all the way through. It was, it was, it was ready for Reformation. And the great tragedies is that they had popes that didn't reform. Many of them that were fighting Luther in his day were upset with their own pope because he should have been reforming rather than dealing with it the way he did. But anyway, so uh, they had tax-free possessions throughout the world. Some estimate as much as a third of the lands of Europe were under their thumb. And that, of course, incited, among other things, envy and resentment because the peasantry, of course, was starving. Well, when you get to the 14th century, there was an English reformer by the name of John Wycliffe that boldly attacked the papacy by striking at the sale of indulgences, the same thing that would that would trigger uh, Luther's Reformation, the excessive venerations of the saints, the moral and the intellectual standards of the ordained priests, and so on. And to reach the common people, see, in those days, the only thing available was Latin. And and if you were educated, and could have access. And that was a very controlled access. So his approach was to translate the Bible into English from Latin. Those kinds of things, people get burned at the stake for. So his teachings spread to Bohemia, and there uh, John H- Hughes uh, was uh, the, his powerful advocate, and he of course gets executed, as most of these guys do as they get into this sort of thing. Uh, and that led to the, the Hussite Wars, and these wars that are then ignited are a precursor of what would go on in Germany shortly thereafter in Luther's time. Meanwhile, the French, we talked about uh, in the previous session, time before last, about the captivity of the popes in Avignon uh, in the 14th century and so forth. The big split then between, the, between Rome and, the, and, and uh, Byzantium. Uh, and so they're, they're uh, all fighting among themselves there too, of course. We have the Council of Constance in 1414, a four-year council and all kinds of ambitious programs for reorganization for the entire hierarchy, but they just kept debating and debating and never did anything, and that was part of what brought it all down. And in 1516, we have a concordat between the king and the uh, the Pope, in which the French Church was essentially under royal authority. So there's huge tensions within the papacy. The invention of the Gutenberg press, the whole idea of movable type, generated a whole revolution in printing that made books possible. The invention of printing with movable metal type. And the Gutenberg Bible is the first book so printed in 1455 in Germany. See all these things help make possible what comes with Luther, because he was able, among other things, parallel to what he was doing, people were getting their hands on a Bible they could read. First, get just a Bible to get their hands on, but then, of course, it gets translated. And with the increased efficiency of the press, that also created a more literate population. People was a renaissance and learning of all kinds of things. And all this fueled the 16th century uh, and the subsequent Protestant Reformation. And so Luther, Calvin, and so forth, all of these could claim now the Bible is the authority rather than the church. That really becomes the wedge that divides. Is this. It's a source of authority. It isn't just the paganism indulgences. In a sense, those are symptoms, not the cause. The root issue was, is the Bible the authority or the church traditions the authority? That's the division, even to this day. Well, of course, you this is just by way of review. We talk about Martin Luther, born to a coal miner. He was set out to be a lawyer, but a violent storm caused him to make a commitment to, uh, to become a monk and pursue a doctor of theology. Disillusioned by what he found at Rome, Habakkuk two four becomes his life text, and he, in uh, October 31st, 1517, he nails the, 30, the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg, which is basically a call for reform, and most of them have to do with the indulgences. And, of course, the response was to threaten him with excommunication. He had 60 days to retract, or death. He just simply burned that, and the Reformation was born. We have the centuries of war, wars, if you will. The Diet of Worms, as they call it. Diet of Worms in our... means something, Each word means something different in our language. Diet being the conclave and worms being the town. But Charles V summons his princes and has Luther appear. And uh, instead of recanting, he says, Here I stand, I can do not else, so help me God. What made it work is the princes, not all of them, but the majority of them, rally around Luther and give him protection. And they lead to what's called the Augsburg Confession and so forth. But then we have the centuries of wars. The war on the German Protestants, which most of that, rest of that century. The war on the Protestants Netherlands, the Netherlands. The Pope with his resources is uh, going after them wherever he can. The Huguenot Wars in France. We'll talk a little bit more about these in a little bit. Philip's attempt against England. Then the, the so-called Thirty Years' War. All these things were really struggles by the Pope attempting to maintain control bloody, bloody period. The Jesuits were a major arm of the papacy in this regard. Their supreme aim was the destruction of heresy and whatever, as they would call it, thinking anything different than the Pope does. Anything was justifiable, which is deception, immorality, vice, even murder. And they, of course, were behind the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, which we talked about last time. And in Spain, Netherlands, South, Ge- South Germany, not North Germany, Bohemia, Austria, Poland, other countries, the massacre of untold multitudes. We'll talk a little bit about this when we get to uh, Revelation chapter 17. St. Bartholomew's Massacre is an example of this where 70,000 Huguenots were massacred. And when they were, there's great rejoicing. They celebrated it in Rome like a great big uh, victory struck a medal and sent a cardinal to Paris to tell the king and queen mother congratulating the pope and so on. Well, so if you just summarize the 14th century. We have the Eastern Church splitting with the Western Church. We have the various, what you and I would consider, Protestant groups. The Wallenses, the Lollards, the Hussites uh, being abused. Get to the 16th century, of course, we have uh, Lutheranism, uh, Martin Luther. We've talked about that. The Anabaptists uh, also get slaughtered. Uh, in Zwingli and Zurich and in Switzerland, has a, a parallel situation going. And of course, Henry the Eighth, most of us know the story, where he, for political reasons, uh, broke off from the church created the Church of England. Meanwhile, about the same period of time, we got the Mennonites, and we have a, a John Calvin takes advantage of Geneva, has a, really a fortress there to to enforce his approach to these things through the 16th century, we have all these different variations. The German reform, the Hungarian reform, the French Calvinists, who are sometimes called Huguenots, the Scottish Presbyterians, and the Puritans in, uh, in the 60s, Dutch Reformed, and so forth. Yeah, there, there, there's a, a substantial number of threads to try to follow here. The English Baptists under John Smythe in the, in the 17th century, the Quakers, the Amish, And so, when you get to the 18th, 19th century, it really starts to, you have Methodism under John uh, Wesley in uh, 1739, the Protestant Episcopal Church in 1785, the United Brethren, Unitarianism, uh, Disciples of Christ, Seventh-day Adventists in 63, William Miller, the Salvation Army under William Booth, Literally, I could probably made a list of a hundred things of these things all, in various ways, people express themselves in biblical terms. You wouldn't agree with some of them, but basically, in the course in 1914, the Assemblies of God, one of the largest denominations. So we have these various den- denominations. So what I'm going to say about, not to pick on any one of them, we, we don't want to stereotype them, but if we talk about the denominational church, what seems to characterize them, as we now with 2020 hindsight look back, is what I'll call soft hermeneutical traditions. Hermeneutics, your theory of interpretation can be very, tight, very high. You regard every letter, every word as as God breathed. Or you can take it just sort of allegorically or thematically. This is sort of what it means. I'll call that soft. As you can tell, we, we hold to a very high, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. There's a big difference. Human editors don't decide what that is. God does. Yes, there are translational issues, but in the original, we believe it's inerrant. And so, that's one of the the denominational churches increasingly tend to get soft on their hermeneutics. Many of them, I'd say in fact most of them, deny the millennial reign of Christ that the Bible talks about. I'm not speaking just of Revelation 20. Most of what we know about the millennium is from Isaiah 65 and other places. We'll deal with that when we get to Revelation 20 in detail, but most churches deny that. That's one reason most churches abhor or certainly avoid the book of Revelation, because they can't really deal with it. I spoke at a liberal arts college recently uh, that the favors a... a, a they, they call themselves post-millennialists. We are premillennialists. We believe there's really going to be a millennium. Most churches believe there is no millennium. This church believes we are in the millennium. And I says, really? I'd never run into them before. I knew those views existed before the, in the 1800s. But once you got to the 20th century, with World War One, World War II, most people realize things are not getting better and better. They're getting worse and worse. So the idea that we're somehow heading toward the millennium, or even in it, is, is not a popular view, I don't think. Well, it turns out what they really mean is that everything's allegorical. I said, you know, I see if we're in the millennium, then Satan's chain is too long. And I said, well, you know, Satan, that's just an idiom for evil, in general, whatever. So the point is, those are prevalent views. And, and, and people hold whatever view they want, but it is false labeling to call it Christian. You can be an atheist. Fine. You, 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 you speak, you announce what you believe. That's your view. That's your privilege if you choose to do that. I run an atheist. I have only one question to ask him. What's your backup plan? You yeah. uh, know? So, obviously, because of that, they also deny Israel's prophetic destiny. Most churches that are amillennial, and most churches are, have no respect or regard for Israel in a biblical perspective. And there's also, in most of these denominational churches, absence of a biblical devotional life. Dealing with the Bible as the center of their devotional life, your knowledge of God comes from studying the Word. Your fear of God comes from your devotional life. And most churches don't have a serious devotional life as I'm defining it here. They celebrate Easter rather than Passover and so forth. They meet on Sunday rather than on Shabbat. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. Don't misunderstand me. But there are issues. And, of course, what we're really getting at, what's probably more important than any of this, is that there's a de-emphasis of the Gospel of Christ as defined by Paul in the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. How the Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day. That's the Gospel, and not the things you hear from most pulpits, most Sundays. And of course you have this even, there's other uh, issues, and I just picked one of a dozen, ordination of homosexuals, unthinkable from a biblical perspective. Christ died for homosexuals. If they repent, they can be saved. But uh, putting practicing homosexuals in positions of office in the church is uh, abrogation of the teachings of the Scripture. And then this we have in recent terms, of course, this whole joint declaration between Evangelicals and Catholics together, which is, of course, is a way of saying, check your faith at the door, because the Gospel hasn't changed. And the compromise of the Gospel lies at the heart of this agreement. Well, let's take a look at the letter to Sardis. Jump right in here. Under the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. So here's his exhortation. You notice, the first thing you notice, there is no commendation. Just the concerns and now the exhortation. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works Perfect or complete before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If if, therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. And when you hear this in the context of the history of Sardis, it fits in a surprising way. What's the exit? Be watchful. Pay attention. Do your homework. Why? To strengthen the things which remain. The implication is that which you had is eroding away. Just as the cliffs were eroding away. Just as uh, the doctrines get softened and swept under the carpet. No. Watchful. Strengthen things which shall remain and are what? Ready to die. I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. You know, it sounds to me that if this is the Reformation, I think it's the later stages. See, the Reformation did a lot of things right. and I'll come back to that. But they also blew it in a few ways, and I'll come back to that too. But the main point is, since the Reformation, these glorious denominations that fought the good faith have ossified, become rigid, become fossilized. Remember therefore how thou hast received and had heard, and hold fast and repent. Hold fast and repent. That's the message to that church and the people in it. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. You know what the flip side of this means? Is that if you do remember, and do hold fast, and do repent, you won't be caught by surprise. Because if you don't do this, you'll not know what hour I come upon thee. Apparently, the flip side is also true. Come on thee as a thief. That's a sardest phrase if there ever was one. Be watchful. What does it mean? Be vigilant. In Matthew 24, we talked about that previous session. The next chapter is about the ten virgins. Five were, were watchful, five were not. Watchfulness is, is admonished in Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 16, and lots of other places throughout Paul's epistles. What should we be watchful of? Well, the wiles of the devil, Peter reminds us in his first letter. Satan is out to have you destroyed. How do you avoid that? By being watchful, to understand his methods, to anticipate them, we 're watchful of temptation, according to Matthew 26:41. Watch that you would not enter into temptation. How do you not enter into temptation by watching it? And temptation doesn 't catch you by surprise; it creeps up on you. You can see it early and nail it before it gets out of control. His coming. be watchful of his coming. Matthew 24, Mark 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, so forth. Watchful of His coming. One of the great tragedies of the modern church today, it's not watching for the second coming of Christ. They get uncomfortable. Well, you're one of these prophecy nuts. No, no, I read the scripture. And, of course, false teachers. Watch out for the Chuck Misslers of this world. Remember Ephesus was watchful. The one thing they did right is they would not allow them to say they're apostles and are not. Found them liars. He, that's their commendation. He admonishes them that he wants devotion, not just doctrine. So they had work, they had homework to do, but they, they did that good. We need to watch for false teachers. They're, you want to find a false teacher? Turn on the radio, turn on the TV set. They're loaded. Paul's message to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 was to hammer away that there will be coming people among you, like wolves, not sparing the flock. And the Ephesian elders took his advice, and that's why they got the good report, that which was good, in the Ephesian letter. Jesus says, strengthen the things which remain. See the great truths that are being lost today. The justification by faith alone. That was the great cry of the Reformation. But many churches the justification by faith has been turned to what some people call cheap grace. Don't worry about it. You're saved by grace. Relax. You don't have to repent. They don't say it that way, but that's the flavor of it. The other great truth is the inherent Word of God. You know, it's hard to find pastors that really believe the church is built on a Word of God that is without error. And I'm not talking about translations. I'm talking about the originals. It's inerrant. It's God-breathed. A small minority of teachers today really hold that view. The depravity of man. Well, there's some good in everybody. That's why Christ had to die for us. There's no way that you can repair us. There's no place in the Bible that the heart is repaired or improved. It is replaced with a new heart. Man is incurably wicked, Jeremiah tells us, 17.9. Incurably wicked. We're not looking for a cure. We're talking about being born again, a fresh start, spiritually. And redemption by His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. How, how, except in a few old-fashioned style churches, you don't hear about the, the precious blood. Jesus says, your works are not complete. Our love's not complete. Our fear's not complete. Ooh, what do you mean, fear? Our devotional life. I can tell what your devotional life is by how much you fear god and i don't mean in the sense of quiv- quivering i'm talking about awe respect he's not our buddy he's the almighty god before whom we all stand judgment you learn about him in the scripture but you grow devotionally in your private time is it regular is it sincere is it committed and our loyalty. What am I talking about there? I'm talking about our ambassadorship. You've heard me many times. I'll say it one more time. I think the commandment, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, has nothing to do with vocabulary, or swearing, or foul language. That's a different problem. It has to do with taking the name of the King. If you're going to take the name of the King. By the way, it's interesting. There are many names of God in the Bible. But whenever you hear the name of God, it's always singular. Because it's not talking about a label. It's talking about His authority, who He is. And if you take the name of the Lord, you're talking about being His ambassador. If you're going to be His ambassador, you better represent Him faithfully. That's a test of loyalty. And, of course, our service. You see, without Him, of course, we can't. We all know that. But do we realize without us, He won't? And that's what the message is to Sardis. Be watchful and so on. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. And therefore, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I shall come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Watchful, strengthen, remember, hold fast and repent. That's the message. Or he'll come upon us as a thief. Let's remind ourselves of what Matthew tells us, one of the most sobering passages in the scripture, finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then, Jesus speaking, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Oh, boy. I can understand someone who has been ungodly all his life, who has rejected the gospel and lived a a dissipated life, coming before the Lord and and not being surprised. Or I should say as surprised, perhaps. As those that think they're saved and are not. That's got to be terrifying. You want to make sure you know where you are, and the way you do is by evidence of the faith. Done many wonderful works. That ain't it. It's your relationship with Him. Well, the exhortation concludes then with verse 4. He says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Thou hast a few names, even in your church. <laughs> I mean, it, the very phrasing is an indictment. Hey, there's a few in there that are saved really? Where? (laughs) Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So there is a remnant in Sardis. That's why some scholars attribute the label remnant to Sardis, but there's no linguistic link for that. It's really a stone that has lost its meaning. But uh, a few names, even in Sardis, Then we have the promise of the overcomer. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. See, all through this letter, it's name, 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 in different contexts. And then the closing phrase. He that hath an ear, let him hear what his Spirit says to the churches. Well, we've talked about the local and the prophetic. What does this have, now what is this lesson then, to all churches, to churches in general. Remember, it's plural, okay? Well, we have the Ephesus was devotion, not just doctrine, remember? Smyrna was just simply hanging there, your persecution. Pergamos, stand fast against the world. Pergamos being married to the world. uh, Churches should stand fast against that pressure. In Thyatira, you know, abhor the pagan practices. We talked about that. What's Sardis' thing? Watchfulness and diligence. Straightforward enough, isn't it? Okay? This leads me then to, an, to stand back, and let's talk about the historical church really, and what the future church uh, is going to gravitate to, because we're watching something very interesting. are very dark day is coming, and yet there's a very interesting groundswell starting, we want to be sensitive to, home fellowships. Why is the divorce rate among Christians no better than among unbelievers? That's a heavy, it's, you know, that, it may be even worse. That says something's not working, right? And what is really meant by thou shalt not take in the name of the Lord thy God in vain? We bat- manner that around. What does it really mean? There is a regeneration gap in the church. Over 2,000 churches planted per week. 150 million in 74 has grown to 650 million in 1998. But... There's a silent exodus of people slipping out at the back doors of churches, unnoticed. Lots of new ones coming in, but no one knows the ones are leaving. They're attracted, but not contained. They're interested, but not inserted into the fellowship. They're harvested, but not gathered. They're touched, but not transformed. They looked in briefly, but were disappointed in what they saw. That's the description of the mega churches today, or many churches today. Just got an interesting quote. 52,000 defections each week from churchdom, according to uh, Charles Meyer in his book, Out of Egypt. 52,000 defections each week from churchdom. But here's the, here's the surprise. An astounding 94% of them are the leaders. What's going on here? And yet, just this past week, World Net Daily published this interesting poll that was taken. At a time when public display of the Ten Commandments and discourse about, uh, discourse about matters of faith uh, have been under attack, a new poll indicates that most Americans, 63% of them, almost two, call it two-thirds, believe the Bible is literally true in the Word of God. That's wild. Even allowing for poll bias, that's That's astounding. So on the one hand, we have people leaving the established churches. On the other hand, we have some evidence, at least, that people have a regard uh, that's relevant. Let's go back and look at the way this whole thing started. There were twelve guys on a seashore, And the birth of the church at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, was in a house. It was in houses until the third century, in houses. The early church met in houses in Acts 2, 5, 8, 9, 12, 16, 18, 20, 21. In in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians 4, 1 Timothy 5, and on and on and on. If you read your New Testament, recognize virtually everything you see going on there happened in homes. See, as a persecuted church, it's the only place they could meet. Jesus taught in the synagogue, but the apostles didn't get very far because the primary persecution in the earliest days came from the Jews. It was a little later that Nero, you know, the Romans get in the act. And and, And yet, even after the Roman Caesars, after that era, when you get into the papacy, remember this. One pope, one afternoon, murdered more Christians than all the Roman Caesars put together. And by the way... The 20th century murdered more Christians than all the previous Christians put together. To put things in perspective. We talked a lot last time about the papacy of this and and the abuses during the Dark Ages. Small potatoes compared to the technology of violence that was at our fingertips during the 20th century. Let's get back to basics. The church is supposed to be the secret and powerful society of the redeemed. A place where people can see the body of Christ. Not simply moved by some order, touched by some abbreviated gospel, by some evangelistic blitzkrieg that is quickly forgotten. We want to return to New Testament simplicity and authenticity. That's what people are looking for. That's why the kids are rejecting church, because they see it as a spectator sport. They want to participate. And we have no models we're advocating here. We want the Spirit to be free to move as He will, not shackled by liturgies and traditional ceremonies. See, our foundations are evaporating. Biblical literacy extent. We have allegorical myths. We have no awareness of the centerpiece of Israel and God's plan. No real focus on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We've exchanged that for pagan fallacies, evolutionary myths. And I don't mean just the stuff that's taught in our high school about biology, which is nonsense. I'm talking about our entire culture, our psychology, our laws, are all influenced by the so-called evolutionary myth. And, den- and that leads, of course, to the denial of absolutes. There's no God. There's no absolutes. If there's no absolutes, then you got everything's relative. And that's, that's that's the society we've embraced. And that all is, it all really was in, in, uh, empowered by the state churches. In 220, Origen introduced infant baptism. Constantine, for his own purposes, adopted Christianity when he took over. The Edict of Toleration endorsed religion as being legal. House churches in 380 were outlawed. And that continues to be the pattern even in the Protestant Reformation. Luther and Calvin tried to wipe out the house churches. there's loss of control in their mind. 431, the Council of Ephesus. Mary was then, uh, instituted Mary worship as the mother of God and all that. And then, so as the state churches, see, all this starts getting enforced. Leo the Great, of course, became the so-called Bishop of Rome. Valentian uh, confirmed as a spiritual leader of the Western Empire. This is just a recount of what we talked about last time. And then they started adopting a common priestly code, about 500 Justinian, the state-ordained church. The church, the state now not only permits it, it now ordains it. And you have the first pope title goes to several different claimants. Kissing the Pope's foot begins in 709. Worship of images and relics develops in the 8th century. Use of holy water begins in 850. The canonization of dead saints in 995, just before the the, the millennium ends. Fasting on Fridays before Lent was introduced, just in 998. Celibacy of the priesthood was instituted in 1070. The, the hidden agenda there is to keep priests from having an estate to have all property belong to the church. So if they're celibate, they don't have an estate. They may have illegitimate sons. That doesn't encumber the assets. Prayer beads adopted from paganism in 1090. The Inquisition begins against the Jews and witches and what have you in 1184 and on. 1254, they officially established the sale of indulgences and so on. That's several, that's three centuries before Luther, by the way. 1215, transubstantiation of water and wine. 1229, the reading of the Bible forbidden to laymen in 1229 and on. 1414, the communion cup forbidden to lay people. 1439, the doctrine of purgatory was decreed. That's not biblical, obviously. 1492, the the Jews were outlawed in Spain in 1492. That's why Columbus had to split before midnight with his crew. 1545, the tradition granted equal authority with the Bible. That's where it starts to get shredded, even in Judaism today whole Kabbalah, really repudiates and goes contrary to the Torah upon, theoretically, it's based, because they start mixing it with traditions, and as we say in the computer business, you torture the data long enough it'll confess to anything. And, of course, that brings you to 1517, the Luther's 95 Theses. Actually, the winds of Reformation started a couple of centuries earlier, but it was one of these crystallizing events, which led to Zwingli and Melanchthon and Calvin, John Knox, and others. We have the reversions then to traditional forms of worship get get persecuted. The Anabaptists get slaughtered and so forth. Even Luther has statements like, all lay pastors teaching publicly are to be killed. These are pronouncements of Luther and Calvin and the like. They had their own power problems. And uh, Springfield was outlawed, disciples jailed, and so forth. In 1600 we had 40 translations from the Latin Bible. That's putting the Bible in the people's hands so they can go to the real authority. 1,700 of the Huguenots murdered. One of the leaders executed before 10,000 witnesses. So fourth century we had it canonized by the state. Independent fellowships are, you know, outlawed and persecuted. Then we have the Reformation. They did a marvelous job on soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. But the other traditions are ignored namely eschatology and so on. And even the Protestant leadership continues to persecute deviant groups adhering to biblical doctrines. And uh, that's a shock to many. And it was, I know it was to uh, to Dave Hunt when he researched his book, What Love Is This? and How Calvinism Misrepresents the Character of God. It's a very controversial book that I encourage you to take a look at and evaluate yourself. Well, we go through more of these. There's a whole bunch of these deviant groups. We won't go through all of that. The Wesley Revival is interesting to notice. Everybody knows about the Wesley Revival. Many people don't re- realize what it constituted. They involved directed growth and discipleship, not just coming down the sawdust trail. Their groups were called bands. You started with a trial band which emphasized provenient grace. That is grace that precedes your commitment. And this was for provisional seekers, if you will. Four to six people met a week uh, went weekly with a leader for a couple of months, and when you outgrew that, you were allowed to go to a, what's called a class meeting, which was convincing grace that dealt with the mind. You were a member of the society then, twelve to thirty-six people. You'd attend that for about two years before you went to a band meeting, Converting Grace, and uh, in that kind of groups, you divide into four to eight people, all born again by now, and then a select band where it's spirit-filled. So the point is, they had these different groups, but they had it highly organized, how you earned your way from one to the next, if you will. In 1768, after 30 years, they had 40 so-called circuits, 27,000 members. By 1800, one of 30 Englishmen were a member of the Wesley Revival. But again, it was the dynamics of a small group. Now, I'm not saying this is the right way to do it. That's the way they did it. When they died, it all fell apart. We have alternatives today. The megachurch is a popular one. Many people are familiar with that. There's also a place for the local congregational church in the the more typical model. Then we also have small study groups. Some of these are cells at homes that are organized or supervised by the local church. Very healthy, very appropriate way to do things. Some of the home fellowships are independent because they're not encouraged or in some cases discouraged by the local churches. And uh, then we have actually not only home fellowship, but home churches. There's a slight difference there. The whole congregational church idea that you have a building, first of all, that we call a cathedral or a church. You have a special day, typically it's Sunday, not Shabbat. It's a professional leadership, a priest, clergyman, or a hireling that leads it all. And then you have a special service performed for the people with ceremonies, interpretations, and motivational speeches. And it has a way to maintain itself with tithes and offerings. That's the basic model of the typical nominal, stereotype congregational church. There's a life cycle for such churches. That may surprise you. Everything has a life cycle. Nations have life cycles as well as people. You start with a people-oriented pastor. He draws a crowd. He pretty soon becomes pulpit-oriented. Man, we've got a pretty good crowd. Then as that grows, he becomes property-oriented. Maybe we need a bigger th- cathedral. And that you, Remember Gideon. You know, Gideon had this incredible victory. They wanted to make him king. He says, I won't take your king. I'll take your money, though. And he, he went he went instead built his estate. So when he died, his 70 sons get murdered by his bastard son. You know, there is a danger in accumulating too many assets, as some churches are finding out today. And that leads, of course, to a power-oriented pastorate. We have the return of the Nicolaitans, if you will, and that leads to politically-driven decay. That tragically is a cycle that one can visualize in some places. And the issue, of course, is accountability and management by hearsay and all these other evils that that, they argue that Matthew 18 wasn't for us, that was for the layman. Politics always emerge when there's no objective function. If you're an infantry squad, or if you're in a sales organization where you have numbers every week, what you've done, or if there's an objective function for the organization, then it tends to be performance oriented. But where that's lacking, as is the case in schools, hospitals, and churches, how do you measure what's a good or bad job? It's a qualitative judgment. And that's when politics takes reign. Let's take an example of one modern example. It's not the one to follow necessarily. It's just an interesting one to study, called the Rock Church in San Diego. Everyone in Sunday church has to be in a small group of 6 to 12. Once it's more than 12, they force them to split. These small groups meet weekly under a facilitator. He's not a teacher. He just directs the discussion. They meet together, pray together, discuss the notes that were emailed to them from the Sunday sermon. They they hold themselves accountable, and, and when they pray for their friends and children, they know their names. And uh, when it goes beyond twelve, it is forced to split in two. In two years, this church has grown to over 4,000. I think it's about 8,000 now. This was written a few, some months ago. Um, so that's one example. What's interesting is most I think, that uh, the average age is under 25 in the church. The young people, they're excited about it. If there's a meeting and they're five minutes late, they're out. They're seri- they take themselves seriously. And the kids love that. They eat it up. It's astonishing. See, th- th- these small groups have some advantages that the structural denominational churches don't have. They have a disciplined multiplication. It's called mitosis. Cells divide. Soon you have twice as many. Then you have four times as many. A, there's an intrinsic multiplication that takes place. They're free of growth barriers. There's not. There's leadership problem. All you need is facilitators because there's plenty of materials around. If they can, someone just lead the discussion about them. The participants are involved. In fact, the facilitator's primary job is to make sure everybody participates in the discussion. There's personal transformation, evident, and thus accountability among the group. This is more effective for new Christians because they're in in an environment where they can ask dumb questions. And it also solves the leadership crisis. It's more biblical than any models that we generally see on the horizon. It's also persecution-proof structure. If everybody's meeting in small homes across the landscape, how are you going to get your hands on that one? A lot A lot tougher. A lot tougher. It's also more efficient. There's no cost. Fundamentally, interesting. The true church is a supernatural invention. It's endowed with immortality, but it requires the means to disciple one another. It didn't say, convert people to Christ, it said, make disciples. Teach all nations. The idea is to transfer Jesus' life to somebody else. It turns atheists to apostles. It takes terrorists into teachers. It turns plumbers into pastors. It turns elders into evangelists. That's what we're really all about. It's a way of life, not a series of meetings. The way is exactly the way it was called in the book of Acts. The way. The way they refer to themselves. There's no such thing as a house of God. That was a temple one day, but uh, God does not live in temples made with human hands. There's no bureaucratic clergy in the New Testament. That's interesting. No clerical mediators. There's one mediator between God and man. Who is his name? Jesus Christ. The Nicolaitans were adaptations from pagan religions. And it's sort of a line or staff situation. You know, lines productive, staff is overhead. There are some issues here, by the way, when you form a home group, and I'm encouraging all of you to consider that. Don't assume that its primary mission is evangelism. That's not, the, not that that's not a good one. Don't misunderstand me. But, Gee, we can we do home fellowship. I will lead people to Christ. Great, but that isn't necessarily your highest and best use. It may be edification and discipleship. You can't be discipled by sitting in a meeting once a week, Sunday morning, or even on a, a Tuesday night. That's interesting. You take notes, you learn something, but that's just, that's not the same thing. These small groups are where you really learn and grow and get discipled. That's really the point. And there are some uh, formats in which that's the primary the, a newcomer isn't in, can, can only come with permission. They don't reach out. They're there to minister to themselves. I'm not saying that's the right way either. I'm just saying there's different roles, different, different strokes for different folks. Leadership. You can have prepared teachers have a home fellowship, obviously, but you don't need to. Not today. All you need is a discussion leader, someone facilitates. There's plenty of material around. You can get half a dozen people in the neighborhood. Come on over and pop a DVD in for an hour and have some cup of coffee and discuss it. And you give them some words about what, what topic might be de- dealt with. You don't have to... All you have to be able to do is lead a discussion. And the, and the criteria of goodness there is make sure everybody participates. That's all you need to do. You run off a of CD-ROM or a, a DVD and the thing, and wow, something, you know, controversial, and they'll discuss it and have some opinions, and let's see, hey, can we do this again next Wednesday? Sure. There's plenty of material around. You can lead them through a from just some introductory stuff to get their attention to a very systematic study. In, in four one-hour things, you can go through Prophecy 101, get course credit if you want it. The series that we're, many people will be using the series that we're talking about here, that way, with a small group, simply to watch it and kick it around. Talk about it next week. You don't have to be a teacher to have a home fellowship. In Korea, they do it a little differently, by the way. They're organized by profession. A friend of mine was there, and the guy said, would you like to come to our own Bible? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So they drove an hour in his Mercedes before they got there. It wasn't in the neighborhood. And when he got there, there's was nothing but Mercedes around. They're all doctors, wealthy doctors. And he had to get permission to bring a friend because it wasn't an outreach thing. It was they, they, all the people had something in common. And, and uh, so it was organized by a different way of going at it. And by special invitation only. When they want somebody to join, they pray about it six months as a group before they invite them in. Then they pray, who's going to approach the guy? It's it's, it's like a closed club. I'm not saying that's the right way to do that. I'm just saying there's different styles for different people. See, small groups are organic, not organized. They're relational, not formal. They have persecution-proof structure that matures under tears, multiplies under pressure, flourishes in the desert, sees in the dark, and thrives on chaos. Maybe that's why I like him so much. The only boast that a small group should have is the Lamb that it worships. The word koinonia, by the way, means fellowship, communication, or communion, sharing, participating with someone. It's the Greek word for fiduciary too, by the way, for those of you that have legal background. It can't be organized, in quotes, has to be led by the Spirit if it's going to bear meaningful fruit. Encourage us to revisit the open, organic styles of the New Testament. Instead of being limited in our thinking by the structured approach that was canonized by the state in the fourth century. Think about it. Well, how do you find the right one? Look around. Try them. There's probably some in your neighborhood. Maybe they're by professional groups, they might be geographic, whatever. If you can't find one, start your own, we'll be glad to help you. It's easy, and God will surprise you as to what happens. He always rewards the diligent. And by the way, if you're having a group like that, staying a week ahead of them on Sunday afternoon by reviewing someone's notes isn't hard to do, to be on top of it a little bit so you can direct the discussion a little bit more, and we'll be glad to help you. That's what we're all about. And those of you that haven't seen it, I encourage you to take a look at a briefing package we have called the Once and Future Church, the discovery that the historical church always has been in the homes, even through the dark ages of the medieval period. Even through the persecutions brought on by the Protestant Reformation, but on some, that's always been in the homes. And what we're excited about, there's a groundswell in America of people meeting in homes. In some cases, encouraged by their, their local church, in some cases, done independently. And there are a couple problems with home churches, two, Raising up new leadership as they grow, and staying networked, not becoming insular. But if you're aware of and deal with those, it'll be fine. The being a Biblical Christian is becoming increasingly politically incorrect today. If you haven't noticed, the true churches will eventually be forced underground. No surprise, but I was surprised by J. Vern McGee's remark in his Timothy commentary a few decades ago. He says, the attack against them will be led by the liberal denominational churches. So let's recognize it for what it is. There's an explosion toward the past, back to the future, you might say. And for me, it was a personal discovery. In 50 years of studying the Bible, I've seen personal growth always take place in the homes, not in Sunday church. Not that isn't a role and appropriate for Sunday church. But there's a modern trend of hope. It's in the homes. And I think it's going to be the persecuted church. And the church always prospers under persecution. And it was then, and it will be again. And all of this has an impact for you personally. And uh, to think it through, pray it through, and see what it has for you. So, the personal applications, I think, is pretty straightforward here. Ephesus had neglected priorities. Smyrna had satanic opposition. Pergamus spiritual compromise. Those were the challenges to each of those participants. Thyatira, again, was the pagan practices issue. And Sardis is the same as for the churches. Watchfulness and diligence is the call here. And the overcomers' promises were different in each one. The tree of life for the people of Ephesus, not heard of the second death to the Smyrna. People, the man of the stone and name in Pergamus, power over the nations that Thyatira aspired to is promised to him by Christ. And Sardis gets walk with him in white and name not blotted out. Each one's a little different. Well, who's the overcomer? Be careful of this one. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't let that term overcomer thrust you into a legalistic work trip. So, okay, we talked about the name Sardis. We're not sure what it means. It had a name, but had no substance. His title was the Holy Spirit uh, uh, allusion that he used. It had no commendation. That is the shocker that should get our attention from the word go. And he had concerns and exhortation went through, and then we had the promise of a comer, and again it was inside the body of the letter, as the last four will be. Looking at the prophetic profile a little bit further, we had uh, the Apostolic Church, the Persecuted Church, the Married Church, the Medieval Church, and we'll call this the denominational church by whatever label. The first group being one group ha- having the promises postscripted, the last group in the body of the letter, and the last four have another distinctive, and that's your assignment to figure out what distinctive the last four letters have in addition to the fact that the postscript is in the body of the letter. Thyatira was promised if they didn't turn around that they go in the Great Tribulation, and the Sardis is indeterminate. We do know there's a few names, a few names in Sardis that have not defiled their garment, is what Jesus said. Let's hope it's that those names include us. Well, for next time, I want you to read chapters 2 and 3 once again. In fact, I'm going to ask you to read it seven times. You say, Chuck, you're kidding. No, I'm not. Read it devotionally. Don't read it expositionally. We'll deal with that when you get together. Read it devotionally. Just let's see what the Spirit now starts to talk to you and see if not with the experience you've had so far if you don't perceive things in the text itself that you didn't see before. Let's see what happens there. Then outline the letter to Philadelphia with just verses 7 through 13. And as you do that outline, there's two questions you want to be able to answer for yourself. What are the distinctives of the letter to Philadelphia and what unique promise is given to them? Very distinctive. Come to your own conclusions as to what's distinctive about those letters and what unique promises they enjoy. Everybody identifies with Philadelphia because it has nothing bad said about it. But, don't just stop there. Find out what you can about Philadelphia. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for who you are. And we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And we also thank You, Father, for the Holy Spirit who we do ask You, Father, to send to each of us, to guide us, keep us from error, but to help us to be watchful and to be diligent with that which You have given us. Help us, Father. Show us the error of our ways that we too might repent and be more pleasing in Your sight. And above all, Father, to be more fruitful ambassadors for You. Not by power nor by might, but by Your Spirit, Father. And We pray, Father, that Your purpose would be accomplished in every life that's in the sound of my voice. We pray, Father, that You would put a hedge about each of us Guide us, protect us, equip us, and our families as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.